guys a couple of sermons back that, um, you know, I always really find very interesting to discover connections that exist in things, especially, especially ones that aren't always immediately apparent, whether it's connections across time and history or between parallel cultures, parallel cultures or the ups and downs of economics, but, but especially connections in scripture that demonstrate so clearly that all of it, every bit of it from beginning to end in large ways and small point to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, and more precisely, do it in a way that's consistent and systematic in conveying the fact that God is the author of salvation and the guarantee of its perseverance and its ultimate completion. And so I want to uh, show that to you today as we continue to look at the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. And just so you really get the full idea of it here, I want to back up just slightly and reread to you a portion of last week's text as well, because it really dovetails into the whole thought today. So hope you have your Bibles with you. It's going to be on the screen, but it's important to see it in a Bible that you take home with you. Uh, be starting again in... 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and I'm going to read to you verses 13 through 17, and then chapter 3, verses 1 to 5 as we continue on. So uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And Paul writes, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God shows you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. And to this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. And finally, brothers, pray for us, that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men. For not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful, and he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. And may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. And let's pray. Father, Father God, draw us now away, we ask, from the distractions of this world and bless the reading of your word we just shared. And help us, Father, to listen to the voice of your Son speaking in and through it by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So just by way of context, remember this is the second letter that Paul had written to the Thessalonian believers and the reason he's writing instead of preaching to them in person is because, if you remember, intense persecution had forced Paul to leave Thessalonica. And in spite of repeated efforts to return to them, Paul had been prevented from doing so. And so uh, he'd written the first letter, as well as sent Timothy back for a short kind of reconnaissance mission. Uh, and even though Timothy returned with a glowing report about the progress of the church there, it looks like in some ways things had apparently gotten worse after Paul's first letter to those Thessalonians, and so he penned the second epistle to them. Uh, and in the second epistle, as we have seen, Paul, he kind of sought to encourage the saints by showing them how enduring persecution served God's purposes, uh, both for his saints as a witness 
and also as a witness against unbelievers who were the source of that persecution. Uh, and the reason is because their steadfastness in the midst of that persecution proved that they were worthy of the glory that was to be revealed at the second coming. And then at the same time, it also proved that those who abused and oppressed the saints were deserving of God's eternal punishment. And that both of those things were going to happen. Both the vindication of the righteous and the punishment of the wicked. Not because of anything the Thessalonians had to worry about seeing to on their own, but because of the gracious action of a loving God, which meant that for them, uh, as individuals, they were free to work out their own sanctification and to live out their faith within their, their families and their communities because God had all the bigger things, all the ultimate things, already covered and well in hand. And so that's what I really want uh, to show you today, to talk to you about today, and that is the perseverance, uh, the steadfastness, the assurance, and the eternal security we have as believers because of the completed work of Christ on our behalf. And that idea is really one of the hallmarks of our Reformed faith, and it's an important connection to make here. Kind of, uh, I thought it was really interesting in thinking about these, these series of sermons and speaking of connections. One of the really amazing things to me, at least, uh, I think, is see all of the material that these two tiny little letters of Paul to the Thessalonians contain that have helped to develop the reformed way of seeing things that we hold as a church. I mean, we, we could have titled this sermon like the doctrines of grace in Thessalonians. Uh, and again, remember, uh, for myself and as a church, we don't hold to the doctrines of reformed theology because I was raised with them. Uh, and we don't do it because it's a personal preference. We don't do it because it's trendy and popular, because it isn't, not by a long shot, uh, but only because those doctrines provide the most accurate and systematic way to view the Word of God in a straightforward manner that interprets Scripture by Scripture, and that makes even the most difficult and obscure passages fit together like spokes in a wheel. Uh, the wheel of the great arc of salvation that we see traveling from the opening pages of the book of Genesis through to the last amen of the revelation. And one of the spokes in that wheel, one of the hallmarks, as I said, of reformed theology is the perseverance or the eternal security of the saints. And Paul has been pointing this out over and over again, saying things like uh, for them not to be easily shaken from your composure or disturbed by any kind of spirit. Or like today, he said, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught. And may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the what? The steadfastness, the perseverance of Christ. And so that means we need to ask the question, what is Paul talking about here when he speaks of this steadfastness or this perseverance that's supposed to be such an important part of the Christian life? And, and more importantly, what does it mean for you and me today? And so just very simply... Uh, as it is in the bulletin article there, if you've had a chance to read it, uh, or you can take it home and read it later, the phrase, the perseverance of the saints, is the name that's used to summarize what the Bible teaches about the eternal security of the believer. And it answers the question, once a person is saved, can he or she lose their salvation? And blessedly, the short answer is no. Right? No, because we know from the plain testimony of Scripture that once a person is saved, that they are always saved, and that those who are born again will continue trusting in Christ forever. Because God the Father, by his own power, 
through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit keeps and preserves us forever. Uh, and this connection, as I said, pops up, it pops up all over the place. Uh, like in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, this is in, in him, meaning in Christ. If also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the what? Guarantee. The guarantee of your salvation until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Meaning, in other words, that our salvation we receive uh, at that moment, we receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit like a down payment you'd put on a piece of property to guarantee that you as the purchaser are going to complete the transaction. Right? And what happens if you put a down payment on a piece of property and they back out? You lose a deposit, right? Well, brothers and sisters, God is never going to lose a part of his Holy Spirit. And so his purchase of you is secure because as... Philippians 1 says, uh, he says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Amen. Right? And that good work that God began in you is the work of salvation that as we have already seen in other sermons from these two letters in Thessalonians is all a work of God from beginning to end. It's a work he started and that he has been methodically planning from the beginning of the world. And, and I want you to really think, I want you to really, really think about and what it means, and about why it should make you feel so secure, not only in your salvation, but in every other area of your life, whether it's your finances or your health or your, uh, your place in a larger world around you. Because what that all means is that in eternity past, long before the idea of linear time even came into existence, before the very first molecule of water was ever created, before the first rays of the sun ever shone on the planet, before the first blade of grass ever sprouted or the first flower ever bloomed, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had a conversation about you. About you. And about where and when you'd be born. And about when in time you'd be placed. And what the circumstances of your life would look like. And most importantly about the fact that for reasons known only in the mind of the Trinity and not connected to any inherent worth in you, that they intended to save you personally. Personally. Through the love of the Father. By the substitutionary sacrifice of the Son on the cross, whose holy merits and obedient death would be effectually applied to your heart at, at some particular moment in time by the Holy Spirit. And if that thought doesn't blow your mind and lead you to trust in God and stop worrying so much, I don't know what, other, I don't know what else will. Right? And you may be thinking at this point, well, Pastor, you, you don't know what I'm going through right now. You don't know my background. You, you don't know some of the stuff I did when I was younger. And you're right, because we've talked about this not too long ago. For the most part, I don't, because as much as I genuinely love and care about all of you, with an average of 115 people coming every week, there is only so much intimate personal involvement that I can have. But you know who does know? God. Have you been looking at my notes? <laughs> right? God knows, right? Thank you, Ms. Donna. And because of that, we can rest in his providential care, knowing that, as Paul said in today's text, we have a Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace to comfort your hearts and to establish them in every good work and word. Because as he continues, the, the Lord is faithful. And he will establish you. 
and guard you against the evil one. And so may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the perseverance of Christ. And you know, church, to really understand this doctrine uh, really comes from an understanding of the unique and special love that God has for his children in the interplay of how the whole plan of salvation works and holds together. As we're told in Romans chapter 8, that says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those that are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And I want you to pay attention to the wording there and notice that all of those are spoken of in the past tense. Right? That because of the plan of the Father and the finished work of Christ and the indwelling of the Spirit, that Christians have already somehow in the mind and will of God already been predestined, already been conformed and justified. And not only on our way to glory, not only on our way to glory, but somehow already glorious in the sight of God as he looks at us through the lens of Jesus and sees us dressed in Christ's own righteousness. And so because of all of that, firstly, no one can bring a charge against any of God's elect. Not even Satan, although he likes very much pointing out all of our flaws in the court of heaven. That is, until he's reminded that when it comes to you, that even though, as the Bible says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, were made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with all of its legal demands. And this he set aside by nailing it to the cross. And not only that, but he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. And because of that church, nothing can separate the elect from the love of Christ. That's why the Bible says, what shall we say then of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Is God who justifies? Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. And who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Right? So because of Jesus, this is because of him, which really... Of course, is the point of all of Scripture, but really is the most important reason to believe the truth of the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. And that's because our Lord Jesus was the one who taught it in the first place. Right? So in John chapter 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he reminds everybody, yeah, the Father and I are one. 
Again, in John 6, we see Jesus saying, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That I should only lose one or two here and there. Is that what it says? What does it say? I will lose nothing. How many is nothing? I will lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes this has eternal life. Right? Not will have in lust or until we potentially lose it, but right now, as you're sitting here and as I'm standing here, already has eternal life. Another beautiful evidence from Scripture of the eternal security of the believers in John 5, 24, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and he does not come into judgment, but has, past tense, passed from death to life. And notice, as I said, that eternal security is not something we get in the future, but it's something that we have right now already, once we believe. And we believe because we have at some particular moment in time in response to the call of the gospel been reborn into the kingdom by gift of faith from God. That's why one commentator says here, just by its very nature, eternal life must last forever or it couldn't be called eternal. In this passage, it says that if we believe the gospel, we have eternal life and will not come into judgment. Therefore, it can be said we are eternally secure. And so, but this is a good place though to address some of the questions that come up around this um, that may come up about, let's say, a professed believer who might appear to have had a fall from grace or has recanted or, or, or rejected their Christian faith that they previously claimed. And so, some of you may know someone like that, someone who at one time expressed faith in Christ and who might have appeared to be a genuine Christian, but who later departed from the faith and you know now wants nothing to do with Christ or or with his church, uh, people that maybe might now even deny the very existence of God, and you might think, well, what, what about them? Well, the truth is the Bible is crystal clear about those two, particularly in 1 John chapter 2, that says of those type of folks, uh, they went out from us, but they didn't really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. So, folks, when you encounter someone like that, the testimony of the scripture is not that they lost their salvation, but rather we would say they were never genuinely saved in the first place. Because scripture is clear that not everyone who professes to be a Christian truly is. That's why our Lord Jesus himself says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And so those folks that appear to have been Christians but later fall away, rather than proving that salvation can be lost, simply reinforce the importance of of making sure that we are genuine Christians to begin with. And we do that not by going around testing other people's faith, but by testing our own salvation to make sure that we're in the faith. As 2 Corinthians 13 admonishes, saying, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Which helps answer one of the questions and objections to the idea of a believer's eternal security, which is the misconception about so-called carnal Christians. Uh, those folks out there who wrongly believe that uh, since they are eternally secure, they can go out and live whatever way they want and still be safe. That they can you know, live like the devil all week and then just come to confession or 
sit through a church service or throw some money in the plate and still have their ticket stamped for heaven. But those folks are going to be in for a big surprise. Because a person who believes he or she can live any way they want because they have falsely professed Christ is not demonstrating the true saving faith that we've been talking about. Because the word of God is equally clear in saying, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? Faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Because we talked about this in Sunday school this morning too. You see, a true Christian will desire to be obedient to God and will be convicted by the Holy Spirit when he or she sins. A, a true Christian will never go on living just any way they want, not uh, only because it's unthinkable, but because such behavior is impossible for someone who has been given a new nature when they were reborn into the kingdom of God. Just like we talked about last week. So if someone is truly saved and been made alive by the Holy Spirit, they have a new heart and they have new desires. And it doesn't happen overnight. It's a process. But they have a new heart and new desires. And because the power comes from God, there's no way then that someone that has been born again is later going to be unborn. Now, again, as I said, that does not mean, don't mishear me. It doesn't mean we can't experience seasons of distance from God or have setbacks in our sanctification. Right? It's just like a parent-child relationship can, can wax and wane if a child goes off like the prodigal son. At the same time, we never stop being a son or daughter of God if we were ever actually one to begin with. Right? Which is why the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints recognizes that true Christians will always preserve and are eternally secure because God keeps them that way. While at the same time making it so absolutely vital that those of us who profess Christ examine ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith. Which is why, brothers and sisters, when you're here in church, this is the worst place in the world to try and fool yourself. The very worst place. And maybe no one else in the world could tell if you are. Because, you know, you've heard that old saying, you might fool the pastor, but you can't fool the master. Right? And sad as it is to think about it, in a church of this size, it's not only statistically possible, but entirely likely that there are people in this room who are still lost and dead in their sins. It's like when someone once asked the great Christian evangelist Leonard Ravenhill, he said, sir, do you ever pray for the dead? And he said, no, there's no scriptural call to do that. But he said, I do preach to them. He said, because I view every pew in every church as a death row. Meaning, of course, a death row filled with either spiritually dead men and women who have been or who are just about to be called to life and preserved by the good news of the gospel. Or else those ones who may be sitting upright and singing hymns and giving lip service to God, but who still persist in a stone cold death of the heart because they have no actual vital living relationship with Christ. And, and so I'm not taking any chances this morning. Your eternal security and your eternity is too important to me. And so because I can never absolutely definitively know which person is which, I say to all of you, in Christ's name, repent today and believe the gospel and be saved. And then in the words of the apostle, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the perseverance of Jesus Christ. Amen. So let's pray together. Gracious Father, be Please today to preserve a remnant to yourself. Call sheep to yourself this morning. Open eyes in this very moment. Enliven hearts by your grace. 
and give them the faith and the confidence to live for you today and every day ahead. We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. And would you please stand for the Apostles' Creed and for our closing hymn. And so let's, let's publicly and verbally confess together what we believe. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the honor of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day, 